This is Transistor.fm. Hey, this is Product People. Normally we cover bootstrap products, people who are self-funding the stuff they build. And we do this because I'm naturally drawn to bootstrap companies. But for this episode, I wanted to try something different. I wanted to talk to the VC community. To do that, I contacted Jason Calacanis, an angel investor and the voice of funded startups on his podcast, This Week in Startups. This is part one where we delved into the human side of Mr. Calacanis, where he came from and how he got to where he is today. Now, the reason I'm able to do the show and offer it to you for free is that we have great companies that sponsor us. Sprintly has been there from the beginning. Perfect for software teams of three or more people, Sprintly is the easiest way for managers and developers to track the software development process. You and your team can try Sprintly for free. Go to www.sprint.ly. We also have three new sponsors this month. Are you looking for a new job? Mood Media is hiring a junior product manager. They're looking for an energetic, entrepreneurial technophile who's ready to drive Mood Media's interactive product lines in North America forward into the next decade. This person must be a visionary, strategic thinker with a hands-on approach. For more details, visit productpeople.tv slash moodmedia to get yourself a new product management job. I also just discovered no ads. The hardest part about online advertising is figuring out what works. No ads reveals your competitors' campaigns, showing you exactly what's working for them. You get to see their most successful ad copy and ad placements. Go to productpeople.tv slash ads and sign up for an account. And finally, if you're trying to set up an online store, you need to use Shopify. I've tried setting up dozens of online stores for clients, and there are always so many headaches. Handling payment gateways, multiple currencies, taxes, shipping rates... Shopify solves all of these problems for you. I want you to go to productpeople.tv slash Shopify and get a 14-day free trial. Now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm Justin, and this is Product People, the podcast focused on great products and the people who make them. And today on the show, I have a man who wears many hats. He's a podcaster, an entrepreneur, and an investor, and he just announced a new venture capital fund. Jason Calacanis, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And I didn't announce a fund. Uh, somebody found the SEC documents. Uh, but I, actually, the fund, we discussed the fund live on stage with David Sachs at the launch festival. Just, I guess people didn't realize they did it then or didn't cover it back then. But well, when you, when, I guess when an SEC documents gets filed, it becomes real to people. Well, that's interesting. Why, why do you think it didn't? kind of blow up originally why does the why does uh, i didn't way? make it because i didn't make a big deal of it you know I, I don't send out press releases i don't really try to get press i just email my email list when i'm doing something or i tweet it and so yeah. and i think also the tech press is pretty petty to be honest like you know they don't like to cover some of the tech press uh, might not want to cover what i do because they consider me competitive mm. you know like when VentureBeat and TechCrunch and Pando Daily, all three of them, like, maybe not Pando Daily, but you, you do see a little bit, or you have seen in the past, like, not covering each other's stuff. I think actually Pando Daily's been really great about coming to the launch festival from day one hmm. uh, and covering it fairly, um, which I credit to Sarah Lacey's, um, you know, editorial ship. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, let's before we get into all that, I'm wondering if yeah. we could rewind first, uh, because sure. a lot of people know you as a as an investor. A lot of people know you as uh, kind of a media personality as well, uh, mm-hmm. and active in the startup scene. But sure. can you give us a little background on where, just on yourself? Where did you grow up, and how did you get into startups? I uh, grew up in Brooklyn, uh, an area of Brooklyn called Bay Ridge, um, which is in the south area, southwest part of Brooklyn, right by the uh, Verrazano Narrows Bridge. Okay. And uh, my first business was uh, working for my dad uh, in his bar. So that was my first job, actually. No way. First, yeah, that was working in his bar as a busboy, polishing silver, all that kind of stuff. I think we okay. probably started at the age of five or six years old, polishing silver and dropping off bank deposits at the age of seven or eight. So no joke. Oh, wow. Um, well, it was easy for my dad to hand me like three or four thousand dollars and stay in the van and just say, "Go into the bank, give it to the teller." Here's he had all the slips filled out, or I'd, and later on I fill out the slips. But I would go to the teller and just hand you know three or four thousand dollars to them and say, "I need a thousand dollars in singles. I need five hundred dollars in quarters, and then the rest you can just deposit." You know, like doing financial transactions. But my first business was copying. Uh, had a copy of The Empire Strikes Back that somebody had made a Betamax copy of and lost to my dad in a poker game. <laughs> and so uh, I was making copies of that and selling it for 30 or 40 bucks a pop back before Star Wars was even on, uh, was even available. So I was an entrepreneuring young kid. Yeah. It, was called Jason's, it was called Jason's Hot Tapes. I was age of 14 <laughs> at McKinley Junior High School. And I had, a, I had one business card I typed up and laminated. Because I didn't understand how business cards work, so I typed yeah. up and laminated one card that said Jason's Hot Tapes, yeah. and I used like different colors because my typewriter that I'd gotten for my birthday, you know, pre it's like 12 years old, yeah, had different colors. So I had like J in red, A in green, S in black, you know, and uh, I would hand it to people, say, Hey, yeah, I'm with Jason's Hot Tapes. They look at my card, and say, Can I have that back? And they say, Oh, you want it back? I said, Yeah, that's the only one I got. So I take the card back from them. It's a pretty yeah. funny scene in a movie, actually. Yeah, um, you saved money on business cards. Well, I didn't understand how business card works. It was kind of a joke. I, I, just, I saw people had business cards at some point when I was 10, 11, or 12, and I, I thought you had one, and you showed it to people that looked at it, and they gave it back to you. I didn't understand. Yeah. You got a whole bunch of them printed. Nobody ever told me that part. Yeah. Now, where because you were 14 at, at that time. Where, where did the motivation come from, this wanting to uh, – like, did you yeah, want to be an entrepreneur? Did you want to make money? What, what, was, what was the motivation behind that? Yeah, I think I probably wanted to make money, and uh, I also liked the idea of building a business and like doing transactions, and you know, eventually I liked making products. Um, I also liked being the boss. I liked to be in charge. I think because I probably saw my dad running his bar and telling people what to do, and he was being bossy. Uh, he's a bossy <laughs> guy, and uh, I just liked the idea of being the captain. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that was a pretty cool position on the ship. So you know, I just. You know, I guess we emulate what we see. So I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to run the ship. I wanted to try to make an experience that people loved. And you know, my watching my dad build his bars, people loved coming to my dad's bars and restaurants. And so I got to see him craft that product, and people fall in love with it. And people would always say to me, you know, and I got picked up after school. Another parent would say, "Oh, I was at your dad's bar last night. It's an awesome place. Your dad makes the best steak frites, or you the I had the cappuccino at your dad's bar. It was amazing." You know. So for me, it was like, oh, there's something special about like these other dads are lawyers and bankers and schlubs. They probably made much more money than my dad and had much more stable careers, and they got home at a decent hour and spent time with their families as opposed to being out at 5 in the morning mm-hmm. drinking like my dad did. Um, not that I'm bitter about it, but that's what he did. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I just thought it was cooler. My dad was much cooler because he was creating that product, right? And it's a product podcast. So he, he made that product. He crafted it. He thought about people's experience, and he was a user experience architect. Yeah. And now, 
you, you have uh, your father, right? Yeah, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. You have a three-and-a-half-year-old, uh, and I'm a dad too. And I think about this all the time, about what, what can we do as dads to inspire our kids to want to, to do that stuff, to make their own businesses and make their own products. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that you have to worry about it too much. I think that there's probably things earlier in life that are more important, like spending time with them, like being present, having activities, having joy, you know, letting them follow what is interesting to them. So there's this whole like I've researched, and my wife and I have researched a bunch of the educational theories and techniques, like Montessori, mm -hmm. uh, Reggio, etc. And the Reggio Emilia program is kind of interesting because you just sort of follow the child's muse. Like if they're interested in crickets, then we can go get crickets. We can you know, do things with crickets and get like just to follow this cricket obsession. And we and we did that with our daughter. And now when she gets into something, she's really into it. So we watched Brave, and then we got a bow and arrow. We got another bow and arrow, and we got nice. the arrows and the target. We've been talking about bows and arrows, and you know, just following their muse, I think, and maybe not projecting onto them. I don't know that being an entrepreneur is the best mode of existence. I mean, we're biased to it. Yeah. But I don't know that that's what I wish for my daughter. I wish she does what makes her happy and that she has joy in her life. So, um, but I think that if they do see you working hard, that is important because I don't want my daughter to think like, oh, well, you just sort of like, I don't know, you just, you're affluent and you got it. How? And we yeah, have two, yeah. we have three cars. Why? Like I want them to understand, I want her to understand it. If I have future children to understand like, Hey, daddy works hard. Mm -hmm. And and here's what he, is why he's at the. I want him to see me get up early and come back late and understand that I have to sacrifice to build companies and do this. And I still have time for them, of course. But you know, you I don't want people to be lazy. Yeah. You know, I don't want my kids to be lazy. I want them to have some drive and stuff like that. So I think if they see drive in their parents, they'll just naturally have drive. I hope. Yeah. Well, does a lot of your drive come from watching your dad hustle in his? In his bar? And... Oh, absolutely. I think my mom, too. My mom worked three or four jobs to get us through school. I mean, she was really the hero in the family. I mean, she worked really hard when my dad's business has collapsed, actually. So this is a very, mm -hmm. like, this is a very textured relationship there between me yeah. and my parents, um, especially huh. me and my dad. I mean, show me a great entrepreneur. I'll show you a fucked up relationship with their father. Yeah, yeah. Or mom, for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I've heard from people, like, they, you know, came home to their mom, and their mom was like, oh, well, that's not really that impressive. And now they're, like, overachieving entrepreneurs. Yeah. And their mom was never quite impressed enough. My mom was always impressed with everything. She, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, um, so from, from a, as a kid, how did you get into computers? What, what was the eventual uh, connection there? Uh, in the late 70s, probably 78, 79, 80, I, I, when I was 8, 9, 10 years old, I was um, at my cousin Ed and Bill McCabe's house, and they had a, went to a camp, and there was a computer camp being offered, and they had TRRS-80s there, and we would like, you know, um, we would go get what was called um, a, a punch card, like, and you would just go to a computer that would look something like this one. And uh, that was a TSR-80 right there on my screen, um, although I guess you can't see it. But if we send you the video, you will. Anyway, type in TSR-80. It's just a computer with two floppy drives, and uh, there were other ones like it. And we would just go, and we'd write code. So you would take one of these cards, and you would say, you know, it's basic, 10, you know, print this, 20, do this, 30, do this, and, you know, whatever. And you'd type it all in, and then you'd say, run program. But there was no way to save it, really. Because uh, we didn't have floppies, although this model has floppies, we didn't really have floppy disks available to us. We just write a program, and then that was computer camp. Just grab something and type it. So I just thought it was fascinating. Uh, so I begged my, and I saw people getting Commodore 64s, and I had an Atari. So it was just like in the 70s, this like computers were starting. You know, this is when Steve Jobs was making them, right, in Wozniak. And so I was right in that sort of zone. And eventually, I think 
the um, I owned a lot of video game consoles, and then I got the IBM PC Junior, and that yeah. was to me when that came out. Boy, was that like the greatest computer ever! And I begged my dad for it, and uh, yeah, it was incredible to have a computer. Yeah, release date March 1984. I got it right as we were going to high school. And and so when did you make the connection that you could use this technology to build stuff, build and launch stuff, and that people would pay, or you could make money from it? Yeah, so um, there was something called BBSs, um, and there was a, um, uh, a, a there was BBS software in the 80s. What a bulletin board system was was I turn my computer on, you dial into it, you yeah. do something, and then you leave. So what you could do is leave a message on a message board, or you could download a file or upload a file. Those are the basic things you could do. Or you could read documents. And so there were bulletin board systems, BBSs, and um, I was uh, what we call a sysadmin or a junior-sized sysop, and um, it was called PC Board, and uh, yeah, it was great. Uh, we would set up these things. You'd dial in, so like Cola Country was one here, you can see. And we would, um, we would steal computer software. I mean, that's what we did. Um, <laughs> so back in the 80s, I had a, a Ventel uh, modem, Ventel uh, 300 baud modem, and I wonder if I could find it online, but I had this Ventel 300 baud modem that was this big, fat monstrosity. Um, it didn't have the couplers like these ones do. It was standalone, but it was pretty cool, the Ventel modem I had, and um, I could connect a 300 baud, which for anybody listening, you know, like if you had yeah. a dial-up in the 90s or 2000s, like it was a 56k, 56,000, yeah. so imagine 300, I mean, literally text would come in like this. I can't, I started at 2400, I can't imagine, yep. I can't imagine 300. Yeah. So what can't. was it, what was it about the BBS scene that gave you kind of a picture of like building products uh, using computers? Was there something on there that made you feel like there's something here? Well, yeah, because we did a lot of things that were really fascinating to me. Like we would trade um, because we had to pay for phone service back then, and it wasn't flat rate. Mm -hmm. We would trade uh, Sprint phone codes. So Sprint back then, the way Sprint worked is you would set up what was called phone freaking. Mm -hmm. So you'd set up your phone to dial the Sprint 800 number, and then you'd randomly try five six digit codes because there were only five or six digits then. And eventually, yeah. if you did a thousand of them or two thousand of them, you might get one or two that were actual codes. And then we use those to dial across the country to California BBSs from New York or vice versa or international, and we download software. So it was very fascinating to log into something in Australia or London or in California. Download Chessmaster, which somebody had broken. I remember downloading Chessmaster. Somebody hacked Chessmaster, and yeah. we downloaded it in New York. And then we became the guys who had Chessmaster in New York. That was cracked. That you didn't need a serial number for. So we became these heroes because everybody, you know, like when I say everybody, a hundred people downloaded it. Yeah, yeah. And then this like mafiosa guys we knew were like, hey, you got software that's cracked. Can you give them like some guys from 18th Avenue? So we started making copies of that for them, and they would give us like five dollars a copy. And then they go sell it for ten. It was like. Really crazy <laughs> stuff I was into. Yeah. I wasn't quite like the guys in Manhattan who were going really crazy. Like, but we like we had like break into the board of ed computer system. Like, not that we break into it. There was no password. Security you dialed in. You know, and you yeah. were in the, you were in there. And so we we figured out. I remember my best hack or my best manipulation was I called up the computer room. I just kept calling public libraries and saying, can I have the computer room? Can I have the computer room? Can I have the computer guy? And I have the computer guy. I say, hey, it's Jason from the stack down in lower Manhattan. Can I get the number for the stack to dial up because we were setting up a new modem? And the guy gave me the number. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I got the number for the stack at the <laughs> New York Public Library. So we could go in and we could, just like when you were there, you could dial in and do searches for books. Yeah. 
when I was 18 years old and went to college, I had the number. And so people were like, wait, you don't have to go. What are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I'm just connecting over the Internet to that, you know, and dialing yeah. up into it or whatever we were doing. I'm like, hey, look, I, I have access to the stack at the New York Public Library. I can tell you what books are there. So then people would be like, oh, can you help me do that? And you know, then even in college, I was like making three fifty an hour you know, doing, um, which was the minimum wage at the time, you know, managing computers there. And then we'd manage computers and we'd pirate WordPerfect and get 10 bucks for pirating WordPerfect for somebody. I mean, it was like a really like, yeah. you know, listen, I, I don't I don't advise people to be into crime, but we did yeah. a lot of caper. I would call them capers because people really didn't get hurt by them, but we were into capers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just, I just love the idea that you could connect to other people. And that was the, the rush of it was like, all of a sudden I'm chatting with somebody. So like, when BBSs became really sophisticated, they have three, four, five, six, seven, eight modems. Some of them could, you know, have even more, twenty modems. So they have yeah. two or three of them connected by a serial port. And, and but the thing was, then we'd have a chat room of five or ten people, and then five or ten people are chatting about breaking into stuff. And people, and then I started seeing like people trading credit card numbers, and that's when I was like, I started to get actually paranoid because we were using phone codes at Severian High School in the public things, and then I started seeing people looking at us at the phone booth, and I thought we were being followed by Sprint agents. So like I was. <laughs> Letting guys call girlfriends on the phone, they give me a dollar or they give me a, a French fries or a soda, and I would, yeah, you know, dial the code and hand them the phone for their girlfriend to make a phone call across country and go away. But I started to think I was being followed. I was like, this is getting too crazy. And then people started doing this really great caper. Um, I should say crime. This is a straight up crime where they would order computer parts with stolen credit cards by the mail at, to like a house that was abandoned or that was they knew the person wasn't home, so they would order it to this house and then they would go and put a lemonade pitcher on the stoop and have gloves with you know materials to like do gardening and they know UPS was coming that morning they pretend they were gardening UPS would show up with and I remember they did this with the extra hard drives and extra memory for PC juniors and other stuff because then they wanted to trade me that for and people would show up like the UPS guy would show up with like hey here's like three thousand dollars worth of stuff and they would sign for it and then and that's that. Nobody ever know how they, you know. So anyway, there was crazy stuff going on, but I was there. That was breaking, and you know, I just I learned how to lightly code stuff. Like I did Lotus one two Lotus Notes when I was in college, and you know, I had, that was one of my first jobs working doing Lotus Notes scripting. Um, before mm -hmm. it was called Lotus Notes, what was it called? Anyway, um, before Lotus bought Lotus Notes, it had another name I can't remember right now. But anyway, I I liked the empowering nature of technology, the communication ability of it, and then of course the internet went. The internet browser came out when I was in college, and when I saw Mosaic, uh, Mark Andreessen's first browser, like that was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And then it, Mosaic didn't support images originally, but then when it started supporting images, you could change the background from gray to another color, and you could change the font size. It was like, this is like a magazine, mm -hmm. uh, let alone when they supported file types like you know video and audio. I mean, video was way down. Real player was video on the internet for a while, but mm -hmm. then you know, audio files came out. Was, you know, was, I was drunk on. It. I loved it. Yeah. And and it seems like there's something about um, especially the communication side of technology that you love because you've, you've been, it seems like from the beginning, involved in media. So you had the Silicon Alley Reporter. Yeah. That was my first magazine, really. I had done one before that called Cyber Surfer for five issues, and that was about CD-ROMs. Um, but, yeah, I did the Silicon Alley Reporter and um, – yeah, it was a trade publication, I'm just saying. and a lot of great people came out of it. Um, Shani Jardin and Clay Shirky were um, on it, and so was uh, Rafa Ali. Hmm. Uh, people don't remember. So a lot of great contributors back in the day. 
Um, I'm going to add Rafat Ali to the Wikipedia page right now. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was great. And even the way you just described Mosaic, you said you looked at it and you said this is like a magazine. So were you automatically thinking publishing? Like was that something you've always been passionate about, media, publishing? Yeah, I always loved uh, publishing and um, I always loved media. I always liked video. I like pictures. I like magazines. I, I really liked magazines. I mean, I thought magazines were the big – that was the big thing in New York during the 90s was zines and magazines. So there was a magazine called Spy Magazine, which was like an upstart. Esquire was this other upstart magazine. <laughs> um, and uh, Paper Magazine was one. And there were zines. So the zine movement – uh, in New York uh, in the 90s was just crazy. Like there were all these zines, and you go to Tower Records, and there would be zines. Just you know, people would write what they thought. 2600 actually was a zine, um, mm -hmm. and zines, you know, would look like um, you know this, like just these little like photocopied you know nonsense, and it was really great because um, you it was like this radical idea. It was like sort of like blogs became a radical idea. You could just print these self booklets and you your words would be read by people mm -hmm. and what zines you read and you know and then they zines actually became more like uh, blogs and websites and websites begot blogs mm -hmm. and maybe let's kind of round this part of the our talk uh, off with talking about uh, weblogs Inc yeah and uh, so the idea behind weblogs Inc was uh, a network of blogs is that the idea yeah, it was a network of blogs. We thought we could have 100 blogs, which at the time was pretty crazy since Nick Netton just had one or two at the time. I think he had just launched – no, he's had two. He had launched, just launched Gizmodo from Gawker. And we thought you know, um, you know, blogging would become commercial uh, and that bloggers would be paid. Um, and people thought bloggers being paid was sacrilegious, actually, and it would ruin it. Um, of course, mm -hmm. it made it sustainable, and it did ruin it. It did both. It made it sustainable, and it ruined it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. I was, you know, it was one of the great successes of my career, and um, not that my career is over. I think Inside.com would be a bigger success, much bigger mm -hmm. success. Um, but yeah, we we paid bloggers. We paid them two dollars a blog post, and um, you know, two hundred fifty bucks for a hundred twenty-five blogs post with the original deal. And Sean, um, what's his name? Anyway, we, we had all kinds of famous bloggers do that, and uh, we became the largest blog publisher in the world. And uh, yeah, we would uh, we launched one on satellite radio, we launched one on Flash, SAS, and we just started launching things on crazy topics. Anybody who wanted to blog for us, we would, and we started putting out press releases. There's my press release from 2004, world's largest blog publisher. I just thought if we said world's largest blog publisher, that would be a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> And and in what ways was that a product? Do you feel like that was a product? Well, oh, certainly like, in Gadget and Autoblog and Joystick, yeah, these were products, and they were also publishing systems. They were best practices. It was all of those things. But yeah, it, we productized it. Yeah, definitely making a great logo, uh, paying bloggers, um, publishing consistently. I mean, I remember Peter Rojas telling me, Jason, you know what the secret to blogging is? And I said, what? He said, showing up. And I said, mm -hmm. what do you mean by that? He goes, well, most people blog for three days, then they stop for three months, and they, they blog for three weeks, and they take oh, two weeks off, you know, what we've got to do is blog 10 blog posts a day, every day, all year. And I was like, 10 blog posts a day about gadgets? That's like, <laughs> are you crazy? Because yeah. I, I don't know if they're going to math, but that's like 3,650 stories a year. Yeah. Are there 3,650 stories a year? Ultimately, we wound up doing 40, 50, 60 posts a yeah, day. Yeah, he was right. And people were like, oh my God, you know, and I remember going to CES and running into John Markoff and 
what Mossberg and other people, and they're like, oh, so Engadget is here at CES. I was like, yeah, we're here. And I was like, oh, how many people from the Times are here? They're like, well, Steve Lohr's here, and John Rockoff's here, and Saul Hansel's here. And I was like, wow, you got three people. Wow. How many stories do you each file? They're like, yeah, well, we're going to do like, you know, I think Saul will do two, and I'll do one this week, and then I'll do two more in the coming months. Huh. You know, and Steve wow. Lohr's did an opener. And I was like, wow, so you're going to do like, 10 stories like that, maybe like six or seven between us, eight maybe. I was like, wow, that's great. They're like, how many stories are you doing? I'm like, we're doing 80 a day (laughs) for five days. And we came two days before it started and we're staying two days after because Peter Rojas and Ryan Block didn't want people on flights the day after CES or the day after that because they thought there'd be so much left to do. So I think probably if you look at Engadget during the CES period, we might have done 100 posts one day and it made people crazy, but you know what? People, the core audience, 100,000 people, were loading the site all day long. So we just blew the doors off of it. And, you know, those brands are legendary. Some of them got shut down, like TV Squad and Cinematical, which I'd love to get back from Tim Armstrong if he was willing to sell them back to me. But anyway, I, you know what? I don't even want them. It's a guy at Inside.com. I can wrap around all this. You got a great domain like Inside. What am I doing trying to go backwards? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, and it was, and great, it was a great product, you know, and I, but I can't take too much credit for it. I mean, I did start the company. I brought my co-founder on, Brian Alvey. He built the Blogsmith platform. Peter Rojas really taught me everything about branding blogs and what the gestalt of blogs were. And Ryan Block, obviously, was his workhorse. So, you know, I drew the Meskill, really managed the, the team really well. Sean Gold sold the ad. So I get a lot of, I get a disproportionate amount of credit for it. There really were like five people, six people who were absolutely key to, to getting it where it is. But it was an 18-month journey that ended with a great result. And yeah, you know, uh, and and talk uh, about the advertising, like the the revenue model behind that. How, how did that work? Was we sold ads, but you know it was kind of crazy that we sold the first podcast ad ever, which was to Volvo for Autoblog, and Sean Gold, um, who works with me now at Inside, he sold that, and they were like, "What's a podcast?" So it was people talking, and we put the video, we put the audio file up, and then people download and listen to it on their iPods, and they're like. How does it get on their iPods? I'm like, oh, use a podcatcher. What's a podcatcher? Oh, it's a thing called Lemon. Basically, you, it's an RSS feed. What's RSS? Oh, RSS is a standard, and then you can put a, an attachment into it. And oh, well, what's an attachment? Oh, an attachment is a file. Okay, let's come. I mean, we really, you know, d- giving Dave Weiner and uh, Adam Curry like a lot of credit, but we were the ones who actually commercialized it. Um, we actually right. saw it as a business opportunity. Which, you know what? I, I don't know if I should get much credit for that, but. It was pretty easy for me to see there was a business there when Rafat Ali, who did paid content, and Shani Jardin, who did Boing Boing, both used to work for me. And then they went to do those products, and they did a really good job on those products. I realized Mm. if the smart people who used to work for me are doing really cool projects that are cooler than the projects I was previously doing with them, maybe there's something there. So I think awareness as a product person is critical. Like, what is great product? You know, great product is product that people use, you know, and people Mm -hmm. love. So... That's the ultimate litmus test. You know, you know you've made a great product when people use it. Uber is a great product. I'm an angel investor in it because people use it and they can't shut up about it. You know, that's yeah. net promoter score. So when people, I mean, and I think the launch ticker became one of those sort of surprise products for me. I created the launch ticker last summer. And it was a Google Doc. I just told a researcher, summarize what happened in the news today. And I've been just slowly tinkering away with that product. And 5,000 people signed up for it, $1,500 a month in reoccurring donations, which... You know, if it's, I think that equals like whatever, $18,000 a year, that's about $4 a person on average. But obviously, it's only a small number of people doing it. So that's been a tremendous success for me, uh, and advertisers love it, So, um, and readers love it. So uh, I like to tinker. I like to build product. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of opportunities to become a venture capitalist, a lot of opportunities to become editor-in-chief, a lot of opportunities to be CEO of other companies. I like to build product. I'm always mm-hmm. going to be building product. I don't now probably be 80 years old and be like, 
yeah, so I got this new thing coming out. It's going to be called more.com, you know, and going to get you more, you know. It'll probably suck. I'll probably be seen now, but at least I'll be launching something. I like yeah. the act of launch, which is why I created the Launch Festival, originally TechCrunch 50, because I just love the act of coming on stage and saying, here's my new shit. Like, do you mm -hmm. like it, world? What do you think? We, we spent some time building this for you. What do you think? I just love that moment. Yeah. And maybe just to... Either having it myself or watching other people have it. Yeah. And and just thinking about advertising for a second, because some people would say, well, that how can that be a, a product? But it seems like there's actually a lot of innovation you could do with advertising right now. If the advertiser we did the first, yeah, we did the, the first customer. Native ads. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even with, um, I was looking at the launch ticker today and I thought, cause I see you have this little, you have, uh, you know, want your ad here. I thought, man, that'd be amazing if I could just click on that and put my ad there right away. Like if I could have it yeah, done so live. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. Sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, let's move on. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about funding. Um, First of all, let's talk a little bit about this fund you just you just launched. What what is this fund you just launched? Can't talk too much about it, but um, I think there's some rules about not um, talking too much about it. But anyway, a couple of friends of mine put some money into a fund to invest in the winners of the Launch Festival. Which, if you had invested in the winners of the last six years of TechCrunch 50 and the Launch Festival, you would have had an incredible return. And I started investing in those companies towards the end, and it's. Um, you know, it's something that uh, Stuart Alsop did with Demo. He eventually became a venture capitalist and was doing Demo. So it's a thing. It's give credit to Stuart Al Stu Alsop for that. Um, yeah, and I enjoy it. You know, um, I've invested in about 30 companies. I was affiliated with Sequoia Capital for a long time with their Scout program. Still am, and um, I'm an LP in one other venture fund. So I just like investing. Uh, and it's just a way for me and my friends to, since I'm already sorting through all these companies, to select 50 companies to go on stage at launch and helping them mm -hmm. and building a bond with them. Like, why not take it to the next logical conclusion, which is give them office space and or invest in them. So I have a launch co-working space here in Los Angeles, uh, and I have the launch fund. So it's yeah. a full-service kind of thing. And I have This Week in Startups, my podcast, where I can talk to them. So sometimes I'll have people on the show, and then they wind up launching at the event. Sometimes I'll have people at the event. They wind up being at the show. Sometimes I'll have somebody come to the event and then tell me they're going to create something for the next year, come back the next year and say, I told you I was going to make something, and then I invest in it and then launch at the event. All this kind of great stuff happens. So yeah. I just like to be in the mix. What, what's the advantage of having a, like doing it through a, like a full venture capital fund as opposed to angel investing? Is it just you multiply uh, you know, what you can do? or? Um, I think if you can... If you're already doing the work to select the companies for the launch festival, it becomes super efficient. And if you've already got the marketing machine to get the word out about the things you've invested in, that's also – I have two I have two basic unfair advantages in the space, right? And you kind of look for unfair advantages. One, uh, the, the event is very stable and you know reoccurring and people love it and there's a lot of great sponsors involved, a lot of great alumni. So I already have this footprint that occurs every year. And in fact, now it's happening like four times a year because we have – uh, niche events like Launch Education and Kids, Launch Mobile, Launch Hackathon. So you already have that and you have the launch ticker. So I can just sort of plug people. That's my unfair advantage. I'm already like getting this amazing, amazing deal flow. And the other advantage is on the other side, when we do choose to invest in something, we know because the audience has gone crazy for it and it won and the grand jury selected it, that would be like you're running Sundance and if the grand jury gives something a prize, then you and your movie studio had as well and you get to 
release the film, yeah. which is what Sundance did with the Suntange channel, right? They sort of had some unfair advantage with the Sundance channel. So, yeah, I think it's – and, you know, the unfair advantage for me is I just do it because I love startups and I love entrepreneurs and hanging out with them. And I'll get a return, you know, and I'm sure it'll be good. You know, it could be great. It could be okay. Who knows? We'll, we'll see. Um, but if, for me, it's something that's pleasurable. And so I just do stuff that I love. I love doing This Week in Startups. I love doing podcasts in the same way I can see you get great joy out of having a conversation. People are like, yeah. why do you do This Week in Startups twice a week? You're 350 in there. Because I love it. You think yeah. I'm sitting here because I'm trying to make money? No, it's not a lot of money to be made in podcasting. I mean, I could be, if I wanted to make money, I'd be a hedge fund manager. I'd be CEO of some top 10 internet company. No, yeah. I do what I love. I love interviewing other entrepreneurs. I love interviewing investors. I love startups in general. It gives me a rush. I'm a gambler. Yeah, yeah. I love gambling. <laughs> Jason was a great guest. You'll definitely want to come back next week for part two. You can follow Jason Calacanis on Twitter at Jason. You can follow me, Justin, on Twitter at MIJustin. And you can follow the show on Twitter as well at Product People TV. If you like the show, please give us a review in iTunes. It's as easy as clicking five stars, and it really helps other people find the show. Help me pay some bills and visit our sponsors. Go to www.sprint.ly and visit Sprintly. Let them know you saw them here on Product People. If you're looking for a new job, go to Mood Media. They're hiring a junior product manager. Productpeople.tv slash moodmedia. M-O-O-D. M-E-D-I-A. Also, if you're looking to do some online advertising, you need to figure out what works. Try no ads out by going to productpeople.tv slash ads. And finally, if you're trying to set up an online store, you need Shopify. Go to productpeople.tv slash Shopify and get a 14-day free trial. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.